The Guardian. Norwegian police say at least 84 people have been killed in a shooting spree at a youth camp. The man dressed in police uniform apparently entered the Labour Party youth uh, rally and uh, began shooting indiscriminately. We were like gathered in the beginning and he came and started to shoot and we all thought it was a joke. The man who's been charged with the attacks has been named locally as 32-year-old Anders Breivik who has contacts with right-wing groups. And I know that everyone in Britain will want to stand with the Norwegian people in the days of sorrow that lie ahead. Also, we'll want to make sure that we learn, like others, any lessons there are to learn about how to be more secure against horrific outrages like this. David Cameron reacting to 76 deaths in Norway and shots from an assassin's gun that rang out around the world. What drove Anders Breivik to unspeakable heights of mass murder? His lawyer says he is insane. He says he kills to halt the Islamization of Europe. He also claimed to have links with the far right here through contacts with the English Defence League. And that was enough to provoke David Cameron into demanding from the security services a review of the far right in Britain. I'm Hugh Muir and in this week's Guardian Focus podcast, we'll take our own snapshot of the far right in the UK. With the far right making political gains in France, Denmark and Holland, should we be concerned about its progress here? We'll consider those who seek gains through the political system, those who rely on intimidation and violence, and we'll also visit the communities they see as ripe for conflict and exploitation. And joining me in the studio to take the pulse of the far right is Matthew Goodwin from the University of Nottingham and author of New British Fascism, Rise of the British National Party. Also our own Matthew Taylor, who has written extensively for The Guardian on the far right. And on the line is Dan Hodges, who works closely with Searchlight, the bete noire of the far right, the anti-fascist organisation. And Dan, let me start with you. Let's look at the whole premise for this. Uh, Brevik did what he did, but his lawyer says he's insane. How much evidence is there of a link between him and the far right in Britain? Well, it all depends what you mean with, by a link. I mean, it's quite clear that there was extensive contact between Brevik um, and the EDL, and I think we're about to uncover with other, uh, with other far-right parties in the UK as well, um, in terms of online communication, use of chat rooms, use of, if you like, social media. Um, and there's no doubt that those links and that communication was quite extensive and went, went beyond just, if you like, ordinary members and supporters of those organisations, but also engagement with, 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 with relatively senior officials in those organisations. Um, but I do think we have to be careful that... Um, there's, there's been quite a lot of, of, of speculation, quite a bit of it ill-informed, in, 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 in my view, about the nature of those links, um, about him attending rallies, about him physically attending meetings with people in the UK. Um, and we just have to be a little bit careful about waiting to ensure that, 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 is, that the evidence for, those, for, for that level of contact stack, stacks up, because we don't want to get into a situation where we are in any way uh, sort of diluting the, the, the importance of the links that have already been established. Okay, Matthew Goodwin, um, you read Brevik's long manifesto and you can probably see why his lawyer thinks he is insane, but how much of the philosophy within that document did you actually recognise? Well, linking into Dan's point, it's quite clear that uh, that Brevik was, re- well, appears to have been relatively well networked online to, to various individuals and groups across Europe and, and and what I think comes through from the manifesto is Brevik was very aware of some of the ideological debates that were taking place within the far right. I mean, 
in my view, just based on the manifesto, and, and, and again, you know, we need to urge caution, we need to just wait and see, firstly, that it's confirmed, and, and, and secondly, what Brevik has to say in the future. But my view, based on the manifesto, is that Brevik um, really wasn't what we might think of being as a traditional far-right um, activist, somebody that was um, sort of aspiring to this white supremacist, neo-Nazi type ideology. Brevik was quite dismissive of parties like, like the BNP at certain points. He was quite dismissive of what you might call the old extreme right, that, that movement that, that, that really uh, affiliates itself with neo-Nazism and, and openly racist ideas. Instead, he was shifting really toward notions of um, cultural threat, the notion of embarking on a cultural offensive against Islam, heavily focused on the Muslim community, not just immigration per se. So it was somewhat of a, a nuanced take, which we've seen, you know, across far-right parties generally. But I think Brevik was tapped into that debate. And Matthew Taylor, you've been writing about this all week. Um, there seems to have been a political shockwave. I mean, David Cameron reacted very quickly, didn't he? Um, was this because we've become a bit complacent about the far-right, do you think? Well, I think that this has shed a light, a level of scrutiny on the far right that it hasn't seen for for several years, if ever. And I think that there is an, I think there is a feeling that the the police and the authorities haven't taken this seriously in this country and and abroad. And I think this will this will have ramifications for the way the authorities deal with the far right and view them in the future. And I think that that could be quite significant. Well, the focus this week has been very much on the EDL. It couldn't be otherwise, as Brevik himself once said he had a close relationship with the group and its satellite in Norway. The leader of the EDL, Stephen Lennon, has been everywhere this week. Here he is with Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight. Presumably you've also read his listing on one of your forums. Hello to all you good English men and women. Just wanted to say you're a blessing to all in Europe in what these date was dark this? This days. Was, this was before his manifesto was released, so you can see that his Indeed opinion... Indeed it was. It was almost the last thing he published before he disappeared to make his bombs. Yeah, and then you've seen his manifesto that he released. The point is, there is a massive... Do we want to learn from this? This man was a sick individual. He, you can never use terror tactics like he has used, but do we want to learn from it? The fact is, there's an undercurrent right. of anger that people... These are the facts that people should be addressing. There's an undercurrent of anger across the whole of Britain, across the whole of Europe. If you don't address this, this issue, if you keep sweeping it under the carpet, and you to keep no one's sweeping well, it under the carpet. The I'm merely trying to establish the, the links between you and him. In a democracy, you use your democratic rights. When you're aggrieved, you peacefully protest. That's what the English Defence League's done. Dan Hodges, what do we know about the UDL? Is it a ragbag or is it organised? It's got quite a loose organisation. Um, I mean, it, it, it basically emerged um, very much out of the blue in about 2007, 2008. It, it, its origins being... Um, very much in, in, in the old, if you like, football hooliganism movement and the old football hooligan gangs. Um, it, it's quite disparate and, 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 and dispersed in terms of its organisation. Its structures are quite loose. Um, its organisation is quite loose. But that doesn't make it any less dangerous. Indeed, in some ways, it makes it more dangerous because it actually makes it quite difficult for organisations such as Searchlight and indeed the authorities to, to monitor their activity, to get a, get a proper hand, handle on their motives and to understand, you know, what their tactics and strategy is moving, uh, moving forward. Um, but certainly as we are seeing, if you like, the implosion of the BNP, um, then the EDL does take on a, a, an ever greater threat. And obviously 
the degree of that threat has been has been graphically undermined this week by the the well-established links between Brevik and the deal. Well, we'll get on to the BNP in just a moment, but Matthew Goodwin, not very organised then, but. Is it in some way effective? In the, I know some people were saying, well, you've got, you've got to look to the EDL as being perhaps uh, a repository for um, you know, all those white working class people who are very angry, who, who think that uh, they have been let down by the major parties. Is there any chance of them being able to pick up on that? Are they, are they just too shambolic for that? Well, I think there is a pool of potential around the EDL. On one level, we can look at this as a uh, disorganised and somewhat chaotic return to the far right's traditional tactic of march and grow, similar to the National Front in the 1970s of using provocative confrontational rallies to, to gain support. On the other hand, however, we could look at the EDL as actually a new type of movement, one that has perhaps come to the conclusion that far right political parties aren't making gains uh, in elections, they're not having enough influence on policies around immigration and multiculturalism, and that the only way now to express uh, their voice is to take action outside of the conventional political process. And there you open yourselves up to uh, citizens who are apathetic, um, far-right activists who are disillusioned with the failure of the BNP to make progress. You open yourselves up to activists in rival minor parties and groups and so on. And I think when we read through Brevik's manifesto, actually, the reason I think perhaps why the EDL is quite significant is Brevik clearly came to the conclusion, having gone through parties like the Progress Party, having spent a lot of time online, the, the the recent wave of far-right parties simply weren't making enough progress on issues like immigration and Islam and multiculturalism, and that the only option left to him was violence. And I think there is a, a reason to look more closely at the EDL. It is outside of the conventional process. It does contain individuals who have simply come to the conclusion that mainstream party politics cannot address their grievances. Matt Taylor, there's a smattering of minorities within the EDL, isn't there? They usually make them quite high profile, but philosophically, how, how does that work? Well, it's a, it's a, you know, in, in some respects, it's a fascinating organisation because it is a it, it is a lightning rod. It's a it's a virulent Islamophobia, but it's a lightning rod that's attracted all sorts of people. I, I spent time on on demonstrations um, last year for a, a few months, and you get neo Nazis there, you get a, a, a football hooligan elements there, you get. I, I, I was standing at some bloke who had a pink triangle who was who was there campaigning for gay rights. Um, so it is a, it's a, there's a strange coalition of people coming around, coming around this virulent Islamophobia, which I think means that we have to reconsider what, what we term a far-right organisation. It's not the same as the traditional far-right organisation we've seen in the past, and I think that, that requires a change in definition from us and, a, and, and, and an honest appraisal of who, who, who these people are, what the threat they pose is, and what is, what is driving them and what is motivating them. The EDL, in the latest of a series of provocations, says it will march through Tower Hamlets on September the 3rd the London borough it sees as the heart of militant Islam. I visited Tower Hamlets and the East London Mosque this week and found a community with pretty much a united message for the EDL. Thou shalt not pass. It's lunchtime now at the mosque and I'm with Shainal Khan, the Assistant Executive Director here. Tell me, how are you viewing this march that the EDL want to have through Tower Hamlets and particularly targeted at your mosque? Well. We've, as a community, we've been here for over a hundred years. We've worked alongside so many different, you know, the diverse multicultural um, fabric of what is Tower Hamlets. And this uh, attempt for the EDL to come here to march um, against the Muslim community, against what is here in Tower Hamlets, you know, we, we find that quite a threatening thing. You know, it's, you know, they're very provocatively on their website put together Tower Hamlets, we're coming. And, you know, it's led to a sense of fear for a lot of people. 
the communities here have gone through the, the 30s of the Moses Black Shirts, the 70s, the National Front and so forth. And it's always been the case that the diverse communities have come together on the fact that, well, we simply want to stamp out racism. We, there's no place for it here. Do you see the EDL any differently since those uh, alleged links between that organisation and the, the government responsible for those atrocities in Norway? Well, I mean, obviously the news is t telling us that there's a lot of links there. And, um, I mean, to be honest, we're not very surprised, um, given the fact that uh, some of the hatred that's been actually uh, ploughed through the websites and what you tend to hear on a lot of the blog, blogs and so forth, um, it's not very desirable. The capabilities of the EDL can be anything. You know, and there's definitely a sense of fear that, you know, what if something like that takes place here in Britain? I'm here with Abdullah, you're a local resident here in Tower Hamlets. How are you viewing the, the prospect of this march on September the 3rd? It's rather scary. I think they're looking to have a mass demonstration here, the largest. And thinking of what's happened in the very recent past, we expect people to come from abroad as well to join in. So there is a lot of fear factor amongst the community as to what, what I term EDL to be a terrorist organization. The only thing they say is that they're against Islam, Muslims. Initially, it started off with militant Muslim. Then they couldn't define militant Muslim. So it's all about Islam. And if you're a Muslim per se, then you, they're against you. And now with an, another uh, worshiper here at the mosque, your, your name is Aslam? Yeah, Muhammad Aslamuddin, my name. I wouldn't be worried if it was like a peaceful demonstration or peaceful protest. But what I can see from uh, EDL's previous experiences, from previous demonstration, it ends up in violence. And I'm really worried about that, actually. And I'm not worried about just EDL only, I'm worried about people in here as well. Yours, last time the Y Yots uh, has responded. And it, it has become a uh, headache for the Muslim community here uh, to manage our Muslim community itself as well because of the EDL. I'm outside the mosque now in uh, Whitechapel Road, which is very busy at lunchtime. It's a hive of activity. And this is exactly where the EDL hoped to be. They hoped to march past the East London Mosque uh, almost as a show of strength. Um, to talk to me about that is Glyn Robbins. You're from United East End. Is that right, Glenn? That's right, Hugh. Yep. Tell me what that is. It's, a, it's an umbrella group. It's a coalition of local community organisations, faith groups, LGBT groups, trade unions, local residents like myself. I'm not aligned to any other political or party organisation. And we came together last year, actually, under similar circumstances. Uh, when the EDL wanted to march last year. came in 2010. You know, we're determined that we're going to do what we did last year, which is to have a community demonstration of unity, uh, that we want to refute the kind of stereotypes that are made about the East End and about certain sections within the East End, um, and particularly the kind of Islamophobia, which has, has gained traction, sometimes even within the, the sort of so-called respectable circles of the media and politics. And, and we want to rebut that at the same time as challenging the EDL. We demand the right for our community to be as it is. We were not going to apologise for multiculturalism, no matter how much David Cameron might want us to. And so that's why what we're planning is important. In the light of Norway, do you see the EDL as dangerous? Well, I saw the EDL as dangerous before Norway, to be honest with you. And I think one of the things that politicians and the media, to some extent, have failed to recognise is their, their history of violence and it's well documented. I mean, I haven't personally been involved in some of these episodes, although I've been on some demonstrations outside of Tamnitz. And when they go to what they perceive as a, 
an area that they don't like for some reason because it has people that are different to them, violence and intimidation follows. Obviously you have to be wary about being alarmist and about making an automatic connection between that type of intimidation and violence and what happened in Norway is obviously is, is in a different league. But having said that, you know, I think it's very important for people to recognise that these are steps along the same path. So let's drive forward to September the 3rd. If, if the EDL do come here, what will it be like? What will happen? What will happen is that thousands of people, both from Tower Hamlets, but I think increasingly because of what happened at the weekend from beyond Tower Hamlets, will recognise that this is an issue that we can no longer continue to ignore to the extent that the mainstream has perhaps turned a blind eye. This is perhaps a wake-up call for us, perhaps one that politicians would also recognise. Dan Hodges, um, many people there calling for that march to be banned. Do you think it will be? I'm not sure. I mean, I, we're, we're, not, um, we're, we're not particularly confident given, given what we've heard coming out of the, uh, the Home Office and the other authorities over the past um, past 48 to 72 hours. I mean, to be honest, we were, we were deeply concerned um, about the prospect of this march going ahead before the appalling events of the weekend. And, and, and frankly, we just cannot comprehend why the Home Office and other, other authorities would, would allow um, a march of this nature um, to be carried out at this time. And we, we, there is quite clearly massive potential for, for very, very serious public disorder. As I said, that was before the appalling events of the weekend. And in the wake of that, um, the chances of disorder have only been heightened. Of course, the EDL have problems at the moment, so in a way it's a, it's a high-risk gamble for them. I mean, Matt Goodwin, what does the EDL gain from these stunts? Well, the whole premise of the March and Grow tactic is to gain publicity from media and to gain new followers. Um, so simply on that basis, the, the March in Tower Hamlets is, is intended to achieve those aims. But I think it feeds into a bigger debate here about how to respond to groups like the EDL and... Uh, I think Matt uh, Taylor hit it on the head when emphasising the importance of Islamophobia. I think what, what we're seeing now, um, and also what we saw uh, in Norway in, in terms of Breivik, uh, and, and what perhaps he, he symbolises, is this obsession with a threat from Islam and Muslim communities. Now that tells us several things. Firstly, that simply uh, talking about the economic contribution of immigration or tightening border security or reducing numbers of immigrants is not going to satisfy the modern far-right voter. They are profoundly concerned about already settled Muslim communities and the cultural, not so much economic, but the cultural threat from rising diversity in Muslim communities. And I think the EDL really symbolizes that trend and it, it should be forcing policymakers and politicians to think a bit more seriously about how we begin to have some of those difficult conversations with voters um, over these cultural-based concerns, because it isn't simply the case that you can say, well, this is what we're doing in terms of the immigration cap, this is what we're doing in terms of border security. The guys that are enrolling in the EDL or who the, the citizens who are voting for the BNP, you know, they, they don't really care about the economic contribution mm. of immigration. Mm. Yeah. They're talking about a way of life being under threat, the national community being under threat, um, and values being under threat. That's where this response uh, issue needs, needs, to, needs to be focused. Matt Taylor, speak a bit about the politicians' reaction, because if the EDL equals trouble wherever it goes, why don't politicians just ban their events or prescribe the organisation altogether? Well, I think it's always a good principle not to ban something unless you absolutely have to, but I think there are increasing increasing pressures on the on the authorities to look at this more seriously and to take, take a stronger line on this. The, the, these demonstrations, <coughs> excuse me, 
go into communities, they divide communities, they leave a trail of devastation behind them, not just on the day, but for, for weeks and months afterwards. And I think we need to have a really strong look at that. And I'd just like to come back to something that Matt was saying and say <clears throat> about the Islamophobia. I think that's right, but I think we all have to bear some responsibility for that. There's a, there's a, there's a narrative that comes from the mainstream press from our senior politicians that comes right back from the war on terror, but all the way through the sort of persecution or demonization of Muslims through our mainstream press that, that is now playing out in wider society. And it's not, just, it's not just a group of others that are responsible for this. We all have to take collective responsibility mm. for that and, and, and address that in some, in some sort of serious way. But Dan Hodges, if you strip away the, the political argument, if these are just public order, um, if they're a public order nightmare for the police, surely the police have the powers to just stop them. Well, the police do have the powers, and, um, and what we're questioning is why those powers aren't being used. I mean, if you look at the EDL, for example, I mean, quite staggeringly, even, even this week, um, the Home Office has been saying they are not yet prepared to classify the EDL um, as an extremist organisation. That's, that's not simply prescribing them. They're not even prepared to classify them as extremist, which of itself has knock-on effects for the ability of the police to deploy resources um, to adequately monitor the EDL. Um, and the activity of, it, of its membership. And as has been pointed out by the other contributors, if you contrast that with the resources, uh, you know, perfectly reasonably that, that, are, that are targeted um, at, 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 group, at groups that are, are loosely defined as Islamic terror groups, but you look at the, the, disparate, you know, the, 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 the disparity between how we, ta- how we deal and the authorities deal with those groups and deal with the, the, the threat of the, the, uh, the far right, and it's staggering. And, and, and the problem is we just do not learn the lessons. I mean, we've had Brevik, obviously, appallingly this week. Um, we had David Copeland, um, who was very closely linked with the BNP, obviously, the, 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 the nail bomber. Um, and obviously, most infamously of all, we've had Timothy McVeigh, all um, individuals from the far right. And for some reason, we, we simply do not learn, learn the lessons. Well, we've been talking about the EDL, and we should point out that we made several attempts to speak with them. Uh, they weren't quite so keen to speak to us. Uh, their line, as communicated through various interviews this week, has been that they've had no official link with Brevik. Um, but I think they did also say that they, uh, they thought a similar atrocity, or an atrocity on the same scale, could also happen here. OK, let's talk about the BMP, which is probably the arm of the far right that everyone knows best. The electorate can be wonderful in its embrace and ruthless in rejection and that's about what happened to the BMP in two key areas. They grew to become the official opposition in Barking, East London, but last May saw all 14 BMP councillors thrown out in one swift purge. A similar phenomenon also occurred in the BMP's other stronghold, Stoke-on-Trent. Martin Wainwright went to Stoke to see how the group is faring there now. Since the 17th century, this town, Stoke-on-Trent, has been famous throughout the world for making pots for pottery manufacturing. On the way in here, I've passed great names like Wedgwood. But uh, the decline of this industry has led to large-scale unemployment and discontent around here. I'm outside the world-renowned Spode Works, and I'm looking at a sad scene of long grass, ragwort. Trees have grown up uh, where once there had been immaculate lawns and offices. It's a sad reflection of Stoke's grand industrial past. I'm just going to have a chat with people and see uh, what opinions are about the right wing uh, in this town, where, until recently, they were quite strong. Every election, we have this immigration law. We're going to stop immigration. We're going to stop so many people coming over. And as soon as, as, soon as the election's gone, it to come over by as many as you like. We, we've got no more room for enough. We, we haven't got, there's no point in, in bringing people over if we haven't got any work for them to do. 
and they're bringing over people now. The car washers or kebab bloody, you know, corner shop, you know. Really, we, we must have some of them lying about doing nothing. Why the BNP haven't done so well around here? It's probably because they've become aligned with the EDL, the English Defensive League, which is uh, synonymous with violence. Football hooliganism's died the death around football grounds, which used to be a breeding ground for recruiting people for the BNP. BNP have got a lot going for them in a lot of respects. I think a lot of what they say is right, but I don't agree with everything. Are you attracted to, to an extent by the fact that they're different from the parties that we're all used to, like the Labour, Conservative and Labour? They're all a load of rubbish at the moment, aren't they? There's no, there's, you haven't got a choice because they're all as bad as one another. Because I think at the moment we are so full of terrorists and what have you in this country that it's all there. There's nothing we can do about it. But the thing is, I'm not being funny, I'm not racist or anything, but if you're a foreigner, you do better off in this country. You think so? Yeah, because you're not part of the best idea, aren't you? They come over here, they set up in business, they get properties, they get new cars. I mean, you look on riding around. We can't, we, we just about forward live. Do you think the BNP could make a comeback or are they discredited? I mean, people seem, an awful lot of people would have no truck with them at all, but then in other areas... I can't, I can't, certainly can't see them uh, coming back in the foreseeable future unless there's another serious downturn in the area then, you know, it might, it might play on people again, I yes. don't know. Yes. I mean, the far right didn't just in Norway now, there's quite a few countries which have got a far right presence and uh, I think, I think people might have taken the security services have perhaps ignored the far right and just concentrated on the Islamic fundamentalists, uh, whereas really they need to concentrate on both of them. It's full of characters, Stoke. Uh, I'm just in Lonsdale Street. There's Marge's Sandwich Bar, uh, and on its menu, the very first thing offered is oat cakes. That's Staffordshire oat cakes, which uh, are only found in this uh, part of the world. Um, and it's said that men of the Staffordshire Regiment, who were serving out in uh, India during the days of the British Raj acquired a taste uh, for chapatis in the same way that India Pale Ale was brewed, lighter version of bitter, was brewed for troops out there. Um, and so they brought them back, and that's how the Staffordshire oat cake came to be. That's one theory, anyway. And uh, it's still a feature of Stoke on Trent, and one of the one of the characterful things about the town. Anyway, I'm in the office of um, Tristan Hunt, who won Stoke Central or held Stoke Central for. Um, Labour at the last election and um, saw off the threat of the British National Party, which had been expected to do much better than in the event it did. Uh, just is immigration and multiculturalism, is it still an issue? It is an issue in Stoke because this is a city facing structural economic problems in terms of the, the old mining industry, the steel industry, the ceramics industry. So issues of unemployment, uh, declining economic opportunities go hand in hand with fears about levels of migration. Stoke in particular has got these problems like, you know, it's very sad to go past the Spode Works and see it looking so um, bereft. Um, Why didn't the BNP do better uh, at the last election or why did they do so badly? Part of the decline of of the British National Party at the recent council elections, and it was marked, one has to remember this was a constituency with the highest levels of BNP representation in the country. Part of that was was national and and the well-known complications at the upper end of the BNP and problems about money and leadership. But it was also about 
rebuilding the Labour Party. And there's, there's no doubt that you see a, a, a very clear correlation between a Labour Party not doing its job in communities where it should be on the ground and listening and active and the rise of the BNP. And it is, you know, men who'll go and take shopping in, they'll mow lawns, they'll mend the fences of, of, of you know, old ladies, uh, and they'll garner their votes at a, at a community level. Um, and we've begun to to turn that round. And if you, if the Labour Party, where the Labour Party is more active and engaged and assertive, you take votes back from the BNP. But in terms of, you know, what... What is the role of the potteries in the 21st century? How do we brand ourselves? How do we, you know, bring in the advanced manufacturing? How do we take the ceramics industry into the future? All those kind of questions which are going to rebuild the city. You know, the BNP were nowhere. And they'd barely turn up for meetings. They wouldn't be active in the council. And actually, I think people began to think that this was an embarrassment for the city, that this was holding the city back. If you are known as a BNP city, who's going to come and invest here? Um, who, who is going to want to come and study here? Who is going to be interested in the culture and the excitement and you know the greatness in this city if it's regarded as a BNP city? And that, that message began to hit home. Matthew Goodwin, when the security services look at the BNP, what will they find? When we look at the BNP as an organisation more generally, I think we see uh, a party that is quickly imploding from within, that is disorganised, chaotic, fragmented, that is ideologically out of touch with uh, where other more successful far-right parties are. And I think when we look within the electorate, something that uh, I've spent a bit of time doing, uh, we can see that the BNP rests on a base that is simply not going to give it long-term electoral growth. The voters that, that turn out at elections for the BNP tend to be older, uh, poorly, poorly educated working class men. It's not a constituency that, say, Jean-Marie Le Pen rallied in the 1990s. He also moved into sections of the lower middle classes and women. To be blunt, the vast majority of voters in Britain haven't bought into the Nick Griffin brand of the BNP. And uh, in, in my view, electorally, I really I don't see any way back for the BNP. Dan Hodges, what happened? Because they had a hell of a lot of councillors not so long ago. I think what happened is we finally woke up to the threat, to be honest. Um, I mean, obviously... Uh, people, politicians of all political persuasions have been very um, complacent about the threat of the BNP and the, and, and the far right in general. I think there was a serious problem of politicians attempting, when they suddenly recognised that threat, to initially attempt to tackle it by triangulating, if you like, and by attempting to appropriate um, the language of the BNP. Um, but once people became organised, uh, once organisations like Search, like other organisations and the mainstream politicians became organised and started to strip away, if you like, the veneer of respectability um, of the BNP, um, then the public saw them for, for, for what they are. And as Matthew has said, having, having seen um, the BNP and obviously in particular that obviously that, you know, that signature moment when, when Nick Griffin appeared on Question Time and the public for the first time really saw Nick Griffin for what he was and what his party was. Since then, um, they've been in steady decline, and I agree with, with Matthew. I think they're, as, they, as a party, are imploding, um, but that of itself could create serious problems because if there is a vacuum that develops um, in British politics that, that has been occupied by the, by the BNP, the question is what will then move into Philip? Yeah. Matt Taylor, speak to the problems that they have because they're financial, they're organisational, they're legal... Yeah, I I agree with both. With, you know, we're all agreeing here, but I, I do I do agree with, with what both other um, commentators have said. I do think it's fascinating, though, that, that in two thousand and nine, Griffin and, and Bronze got elected to the European Parliament, and just two years later, we're at this point where they are just obviously and palpably imploding. Um, 
and I think the right the, the points that have been pointed out for are, are right. But I also think that there, there, there is a disaster for them I just you know it's been incredibly badly managed it's a, it's a level of incompetence that is quite staggering really. I mean they've just had an election for the leadership uh, in total for the entire election they only mustered 3,000 votes across the country mm. and Nick Griffin won by nine votes um, which surely means civil war in the future doesn't it? Yeah I mean from the out from, from, from my point of view I think that's probably just about the worst possible worst possible outcome for the BNP because it means Griffin can hang on and he will hang on as far as you know, the, the, what I know about him he's not a person that's going to walk away um, and that will just, will, will, it's an open civil war now within the party. Bronze appears to me to be trying to get himself expelled, pushing and pushing and pushing. And at that point, he'll then split and take his, some followers with him. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't see a way, a, way, a way back for them necessarily. I think it's interesting that from the right of the Tory party, really, and, 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 and right out to the extreme fringes, there's no really valid ex- political expression for those, and there's a lot of people in the in the in the country that are that are, are out are out there with their views, but there's no there's no articulation of them in, in, in a way, and I think that's a dangerous place for us to be. The really worrying thing is what is going to take the BMP's place, because if you like, the BMP have been have been a, a strand of what is what is effectively a, a, a three strand, if you like, debate and dialogue that is going on within the far right. Those such as the BMP who have advocated a strategy of attempting to, if you like, mainstream their messages which obviously, as we've seen, has failed disastrously. Others in the right who, have set, who effectively have adopted an almost like a no-compromise-with-the-electorate approach and have insisted on sticking you know, rigidly to the traditional extremist far-right messages. And there's a third strand, and, and obviously the most dangerous strand of all, those, uh, and the is, is, is a manifestation of that, of those who say we should have nothing to do with the democratic process at all. It, 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 it serves no purpose for us. And we must go down the route of direct, direct action which inevitably leads to violence and then inevitably leads to terrorism. And I think the real danger is that as, as, as groups like the BNP probably fail to penetrate politically, um, the, the, the pressure within the far right and these far right splinter groups to increase their profile and increase their, if you like, their version of direct action, which is violent and terrorism, I think those pressures will increase. I think this question of underlying potential is absolutely fascinating because we've known from the late 1960s onwards that large numbers of Britons don't like immigration, they want less immigration. We've known over the last decade that large numbers of Britons are also anxious over Muslim communities and very dissatisfied with the response of the mainstream parties on those specific issues. This has opened up space for the York Hiders, Jean-Marie Le Pen's of the world. Um, the question, though, is what type of party could potentially occupy that space? And this is where I think the evidence base speaks quite loudly. When we look across Europe and and we look at some of the studies that have been done, one of the things that matters um, uh, a great deal are the origins of the parties. Now, those parties in Europe that have originated from openly neo-Nazi, crude, racist, um, anti-democratic backgrounds, typically just uh, flunk at elections. They just find it impossible to put together that broad coalition of voters that, that we've seen elsewhere. If a party was to emerge that wasn't coming out of those neo-Nazi, crude, racial nationalist roots, a party that, say, was coming from a more legitimate tradition in British politics, perhaps one wrapped around you know, Euroscepticism, for example, then you might begin to see the electorate have a different view because there are clearly large proportions of voters who are susceptible to the radical right message. 
We've seen that at the time of Enoch Powell, we've seen it at the time of Margaret Thatcher, we've seen it over the last 10 years. The BNP has not profited uh, from that, but that pool of potential, as a recent report from Searchlight and also um, an, earlier, uh, an earlier study um, by us at Public Opinion, you know, revealed. I mean, there are large numbers of citizens that are potentially available to that message. Okay, well... We talked about the uh, BNP and uh, EDL, and I should say that the, we did ask for an interview with someone senior from the BNP, but that request was declined. So those are the two groups that people know best, but um, if the report to the PM is to be definitive from the security services, um, Matthew, tell me what other groups uh, might they tell him about? The groups that come immediately into my mind are those that are to the right of the BNP, if that even if that even makes sense, the ultra-right, um, violent, prone groups that we know very little about. Um, I'm talking about sort of the classic neo-Nazi, uh, white power groups, you know, thinking about racial volunteer mm. force, Aryan strike force, combat 18, blood and honour. I mean, the, one of the interesting things, actually, if, when we look at the right wing of British politics, I can't recall a time when it's ever been so cluttered. It's not only um, the BNP, I mean, the National Front, English Democrats, British Freedom, British People's Party, uh, and then, then you move into the small groups, the Racial Volunteer Force, Aryan Strike Force, Combat 18, Blood and Honour, English Defence League. You know, this territory has just been completely crowded out. Well, of course, uh, the security services do have a constant brief to watch the far right, along with extremists of all other stripes. I asked the security editor, Richard Norton-Taylor, how they do it, and whether David Cameron's demand for a review of the far right took them by surprise. They didn't know it was coming. The security service, the domestic security service, MI5, says this. We are only dealing with targets or people who they reckon to be a threat to, quote, national security, unquote. There's no evidence that the right-wing extremists and anyone linked to the Norwegian uh, is, is such a threat. So if it's just a group that encourage others to have a punch-up in the high street, that's not really on our radar. That, that used to be, uh, in, the, in the old Cold War days, there, there were the, the left, the Communist Party, was under, were targeted by MI5, and so were certain right-wing groups, Combat 18 and others. Now, this uh, counter-subversion policy, as they call it, was put it, well, first put into the hands of the Special Branch. It doesn't exist anymore, the Met Special Branch. It's now into the uh, various parts of the Met Police, including a, an organization which uh, MI5 told me about, I never heard about before, called the National Domestic Extremist Unit, which is part of the Met. So MI5 saying, now you do with us, Gov, we don't consider, well, the English Defence League and the people that uh, Norwegian was in contact with as a threat to British national security. On the other hand, if I just quickly say, there's a contradiction here because Cameron then says, and MI5 accept, there will be some kind of review of existing counter-terrorism policy in Britain. So is this fellow a threat to uh, an extreme right, a threat to, uh, in the sense of counter-terrorist threat, or are they regarded as just individual violent extremist criminals. So what happens day to day? To what extent are right-wing groups being monitored by the, so the security services just uh, in a normal situation? Well, I don't, think then, I don't think they are monitored by MI5 anymore. And, uh, you know, you have to believe what they say, I suppose. But, I mean, given all that, that the traditional international terrorists, i.e. the terrorists they've got on their plates, the, the plotters of terrorists' uh, of action, i.e. in basically extreme uh, Muslim groups or Islamic groups, i.e. the greatest threat of the people who are, you know, jihadis or whatever, they do not have time or the resources, even if they wanted to, to monitor homegrown domestic, ex quote, extremists in the, in the sense of extreme political, however violent they are, individuals, they say, because they say that these people are individuals. They're not an organised group. The Guardian's Richard Norton-Taylor. I think one of the questions people ask themselves is when you look across Europe and you consider the public mood, 
um, far-right parties are able to do well electorally in other countries, but not so well here or not for long. Why is that? I mean, it goes back to the, the, the points we've raised about why the BNP didn't succeed, I suppose. I think, I think the traditional far-right in this country has had a real problem because there, there's an association with a neo-Nazi past, which is, goes back to a deep narrative in our, in our country from the Second World War. That It's a big no-no for most people in this country. But it goes to the point that if, if somebody can create a, a brand of, uh, of populist far-right politics that doesn't have that, that legacy, that toxic legacy then there is a, I think there is a potential, and that's what we need to be aware of. And I'd go back to the point that, that someone raised about, um, about Brevik and, and a lone wolf, and whether he was insane or not insane. I think, by definition of what he did, I would say that is a definition of insanity in some ways. But he didn't, he di- he didn't exist in a vacuum. He wasn't created in a vacuum. He drew influence um, from the, the writings and the, the messages of some of these groups that we talked about today. And I think we need to be aware of that. And the, 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 there is a... There is an impact of that sort of hate speech and that sort of relentless demonising of a community. And, 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 when, when, and when someone like Brevik takes up those messages, this is the result we're seeing today. Dan Hodges, is that the protection that we have, the fact that the British people will maybe grumble and they will protest, but at the, at the end of the day, they just don't like extremists? Well, I think that is, that is a protection, and I think actually it's protection uh, sort of Europe-wide. I mean, people at the end of the day don't tend to like extremist politicians. As we know, politics is genuinely conducted from the centre, but I mean, that then um, actually creates our biggest danger, which is complacency. And as I said, we, you know, obviously we do need to you know, retain our vigilance if we are to counter these threats. I mean, I think the one thing that I would say, um, referring to the picture in Europe, is one of the most alarming things we're starting to see develop at the moment is if you like this fusion um, between, if you like, constitutional politics and paramilitary politics. In the past, they've been, they've been effectively separate, but we can all, you, you've already got a situation, for example, in Italy, um, in areas of Italy, Italy where we literally now, you literally now see brown shirts patrolling the streets. You look at somewhere like the, the Jobbik party in Hungary, for example, where there is a fusion almost of a, of a parliamentary party and a paramilitary organisation. Um, now, this is very, very worrying in terms of the rest of Europe. I'm not saying for, for an instant that we will see um, the, the, you know, significant growth of a movement like that in this country, but certainly uh, on a, from a European perspective, that's very, very alarming. Well, maybe David Cameron's request for a review is uh, not before time. Uh, and maybe we'll send him that this podcast, but uh, there we're going to have to leave it. Thanks to Dan Hodges, who works closely with Searchlight, Matt Goodwin and Matt Taylor, and also to my colleague Martin Wainwright, who went to Stoke. I'm Hugh Muir. The producer of this Guardian Focus podcast was Peter Sale. And before we go, we're currently asking all listeners to our podcast to tell us how we can improve what we do. If you wouldn't mind answering a few questions, then please email us on focuspodcast at gmail.com. That's focuspodcast at gmail.com. We'd really appreciate your feedback. But that's it for now. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.